everybody. Welcome to the Abstract Capable Communities podcast. Uh, my name is Eric Veal, and I'm here today with president of the Monarch Group and consultant Andy Scott. And uh, welcome to the show, Andy. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm also here today with partner at Leadership Development Group, Alan Anderson, who is with the Shandell Group. Welcome, Alan. Hey, thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, today's topic is sales and marketing or selling and marketing products and services. And this is the this is episode five, and this is also the third process area of the APQC framework. And in the past couple episodes, we've talked about vision and strategy, and we've talked about developing and managing products and services. So today we're going to spend some time just getting to know sales and marketing a little bit better and explore that uh, topic. We'll basically kind of chop this up into three 20-minute segments to make it a little bit more uh, bite size and appealing. So first thing we're going to ask and talk about is what is sales and marketing? So either Alan or Alan or Andy, go ahead and jump in on your, your thoughts on that topic. Well, I think there's um, as many answers to that as there are sales and marketing um, <laughs> professionals. Uh, some folks will tell you uh, in marketing that if they do a great job, then there's no need for salespeople. And a sales guy will tell you that uh, um, you know, they're so good that they don't need any marketing. Um, but I think the two things uh, come to, together. And I see it as marketing is getting people interested in being willing to hand over their money for whatever it is that they're going to be, mm-hmm. uh, that you're selling. And the salesperson is the person who extracts that money from you. So one's about getting you interested and getting you willing um, to, uh, to spend the money, to invest. And um, the salesperson is the one that uh, actually seals the deal and gets you to hand that money over. Yeah, I would... Second that, <clears throat> that's well stated. think the additional layer to that really comes down to what is your business? You know, how small, how large? And that will probably determine what that looks like functionally. That's a great way to put it, though, especially in this day and age in the way that business is done now. Mm-hmm. What, what are some of the differences between maybe sales and marketing online or digitally versus um, not digitally in kind of the analog sense? Yeah, I think that uh, one thing that's interesting is that you can go back, you know, 100 years, 200 years, 1,000 years, and people were doing some form of sales and and marketing. And I don't think that from a human perspective, the psychology of buying and selling um, has really changed very much. I think what has changed is the manner by which that happens is is that is that an issue with um what was my question um so channels is what i was going to ask about so um the channels used to be face-to-face and flyers and print and whatnot and now we have a lot of new channels you know formerly tv radio and those kinds of things but now we're i think just surrounded by everything that's coming through the channel of our phone and you know, in particular, like that seems to, at least to me, I mean, at least the, the channels aspect seems to be constantly changing, but the actual tenets of doing sales and marketing are kind of consistent or they're just psychological issues of people's motivations and value exchange. Yeah. I think that, uh, I, I definitely agree with that. I think the, um, the advent of all the digital, uh, technology, the ability to reach people, um, 
still doesn't take away from the need for face-to-face -face interactions. For example, you're not going to sell um, online without having any interaction a $50 million IT system for a big bank. Yeah. However, you can sell you know, probably up to something in the region of $10,000 without ever having meet Uh, the, the prospect who you turn into a customer through an education-based system over the internet, whether it be podcasts and mm. audio or video, um, content that is dripped to um, the prospect and gets them interested in buying. And the whole digital landscape enables you to do both the marketing and the selling in one. Mm. But I do think that there is a cutoff... Um, from a value perspective of how much is going to be spent um, because people want to look you in the eye right. if they're going to be spending a great deal of money. So there's a, there's a threshold over a size or there's different types of sales and marketing. If you have a huge transaction, your methodology or modalities, the way that you do it are going to be pretty different based on the size of the transaction. Is that the issue? I would, I would agree. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. I think yeah. really what we're talking about, if we oversimplified it potentially, is we're talking about do I trust you with what I'm essentially going to give you in exchange for what I'm going to receive? Mm -hmm. And that's really what this explosion of the digital has adjusted the, the landscape because everyone literally everyone can start marketing any particular thing they want. It's a, it's made it so much easier to pay to play nowadays. And I think that's really the essence of what you're getting at is can I, there, is there a threshold and what is that threshold mm -hmm. for me to essentially say I trust you enough to right. do the transaction? Right, so there, there's a threshold I think of the, of the item being transacted itself and then there's like a channel cost and kind of to your point about the mobile, for example, or that anybody could get online and make a website and it's basically free and they mm -hmm. can start to promote things. And so there's, there's the thresholds, the kind of cost to enter into doing marketing is pretty low now. It's just mm -hmm. dollars basically. And so the, you know, anyway. Yeah. I think it's been one of the great levelers that's allowed now a small individual business uh, to compete with Yeah, the Fortune 500, um, you know, at the end of the day, what people buy is something that grabs their attention that they want. And it allows you through the Internet, through mobile devices, through technology to create hooks that get people interested. And it doesn't matter how big you are. And it doesn't matter whether you're a Geico saying that they can save you 15% um, or whether you're a small individual um, insurance broker saying something uh, the same way. Mm -hmm. and, and what are some more of those differences, I think, between the big guys? Like, so, for example, um, Alan shared an article with me earlier today that was about Nike And Alan, why don't you maybe just tell that story of, I can't remember the name of the head wrap thing that they had. I, th I think it's pronounced hijab, mm -hmm. uh, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. But, but Nike, in a brilliant move, is essentially making a play toward um, an unreached 
demographic and that demographic was like 20% of the market or something crazy. Mm-hmm. It was like 1.6 billion people. And what, what, what could have been understood as this almost political move, it wasn't. They basically were saying, we want to give a great product to a people who have a need mm-hmm. but don't have this product. Let us help you out. Right. And, and what are some differences? I'm trying to think of there's a perspective of the big company like Nike that's already established that can do things like that or take risks or uh, make products that are targeted at specific audiences or what have you. I think um, some of the stuff that they have going into that is already a reputation. We already know the Nike brand. Um, and then in the article is talking about Under Armour, for example, who is a pretty big mm-hmm. competitor to Nike. And Under Armour didn't take, or actually they, they aren't perceived as like kind of globally friendly to Islam, for example, or the mm-hmm. guy's like a big Trump supporter, for example. But um, so there, there's there's assets and value that big brands have like Nike. They, they already are established and we already know them and we already kind of trust them. What are some differences in what Nike can do versus if I wanted to do the same thing as an entrepreneur, if I came up with that idea, what how would I sell and market the same thing or even should I? Is that? Well, I think that um, it it comes down to can you grab the attention of your target market with a product or service that they really want or need? And can you do that in a way that is easily scalable. I don't think it matters anymore um, how much experience you have. I think that many companies you know, get, become known um, for certain characteristics. For a long time, Toyota was known for its quality, but they didn't really market its quality. Mm-hmm. Their brand came over as... Um, you know, if, and if you asked anybody, people would say, yes, Toyota was a quality um, company with a quality car, and that's what they were known for. But they didn't market themselves and market their cars as, as such. They grew that brand awareness over a period of time from their behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, so big companies and people who've been experienced and around for a long time have that as an advantage. But I don't think it's a requirement anymore. It doesn't stand um, in the way. Let me give an example of, um, uh, I've worked a lot with small businesses, uh, and you go to a plumber uh, and you see them saying, you know, I'm a plumber. I fix toilets and leaks and bathrooms and kitchen. and they say that I'm in, you know, I've been in business for 25 years. Well, are you going to buy from the person who markets themselves, highly professional, I fix these things because I'm a plumber, and I've been in business for this long? Well, number one, you're a plumber, so we expect you to be able to fix those things. Um, number two, it, professional and quality, well, we don't expect you to come to our house and do a bad job if we're going to pay you to do a job. We don't expect you to behave in an unprofessional manner or a bad quality service. Um, and you know, we don't really care how long you've been in business versus somebody who comes in and says, I'll fix your leak in under 10 minutes and guarantee it never comes back. 
Well, all of a sudden, you've got a different conversation, and that's mm-hmm. the person you want to go and buy from. Mm-hmm. And no mention of how long they've been in business. Right. No mention of all of the obvious things that they uh, would do. They've hit the pain point. You've got a leak. I'll fix it in 10 minutes. You like that. And you'll probably pay more money for, um, for that too because of its, you know, it solves a problem immediately for you. Mm-hmm. And it's irrespective of their uh, length in business or um, their size or reputation. Mm-hmm. Especially if you put that, uh, I think I heard you say, Andy, put the um, guarantee on it, right? They're basically safeguarding if this isn't done to satisfaction. And I think there's an element where, and even within the APQC model, really what we're talking about is how do we win the long game over time? Mm -hmm. And however, you know, whatever that looks like for you and whatever um, shakes out for your business, what we're talking about is what I'm marketing or what I'm selling, is it going to be true to what you get? Mm -hmm. And that is what now... Uh, the the customer, the consumer, the client has mo- has been equipped because of this day and age to now say yes, this is exactly what I got, or no, this is not. You know that ten minute job was it said it was guaranteed, it wasn't. It was ter- and so that that's a that's another component here yeah. to what we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the flip side of the coin. Is a lot of the expectation setting and selling really is about is about talking about what you're going to do and preparing your audience for what you're going to be providing them and setting all those expectations. And then there's the reality of what you did. And then it's their perception, no longer yours, about what happened, what they thought, what questions came up, and, and how good you really did mm-hmm. at delivering the service and setting the expectations about what you're going to do. But yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's possible, of course, to only talk about the sales and marketing side and promoting the burqa or hijab or thing right. and, and, and how I could do that. But if you compare my supply chain management capability to that of Nike's, mine's is, mine is not as great. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have the storefronts. I don't have <laughs> anything, right? And so the project of selling and marketing is important and maybe not... In some cases, of course, they can be wildly expensive if we think about Super Bowl ads or whatever. Um, but then on the delivery end of it, that's where it's tougher, I think, at least. If you really want to be a quality business that stays in business, it's really not just about selling and marketing. At some point, you have to be real and honest. Yeah, and essentially, the marketing kind of comes out with, um, here's what we're promising to mm-hmm. deliver to you. For a certain price, sales comes along and reassures you that that's going to be um, the case and answers all of your questions, um, removes any objections that you might have, and uh, then you have the delivery that has to then come along uh, and back all of that up. But if you take one step back again to kind of the initial question, you know, what is the sales and marketing? And we know that these two things, I think we kind of gave a reasonable high-level definition of it. And I think for any business, no matter what size, you start off with defining what is going to be your marketing strategy. And that marketing strategy then leads into your sales strategy. And those things help define the scale of your delivery Mm -hmm. and what you're going to need to be able to deliver. So with your marketing plan, you'll decide through market analysis who are going to be my target uh, customer. 
what is the size of that target customer segment? Mm -hmm. Well, what part of that target market am I going to then um, go after? And so that would be one piece of the marketing plan. And correspondingly, you'll have a piece of the sales plan that goes directly with that. Well, how am I going to approach? Now I know what that target market is. How am I going to approach that target market? What methods am I going to use? And again, depending on scale, you might have to decide how you're going to organize your sales force um, for that. If you're a large uh, multinational corporation with many big customers, you might decide, well, I'm going to have a target of so many uh, hundreds of um, accounts that are very large, and I'm going to have people dedicated to those accounts, working inside those um, customer companies, all the way down to um, having an individual, um, having an individual um, being able to take. I'm sorry, I completely lost my train of thought. No, well, I think the point, the point, Andy, was was um, what I understood was that there's a chunking. If we talk about strategy, so two things. One is. If we look at the first five steps of the APQC model, you start with vision and strategy. You step into products and products and service, basically definition, but it's both development and management. So you're looking at your kind of marketing mix, if you will, or your product mix. Like, what is the value prop essentially? What are you providing in terms of scope and scale? And then, and then you're then you can look at, and not necessarily these are the the order per se, but but there's a marketing and sales plan and lens and and then the delivery per se, and then you have this customer service function. And, but what I was taking away from your comments, Andy, is that strategically there's a sizing chunking thing. Like there's some core process that applies to both a really small business. Like if I wanted to sell this product that Nike, if I came up with the idea that Nike had and I wanted to do it there through lean or whatever mm-hmm. it is, agile, call it what, it, what you want. There's, there's a way for me to run that project strategically to try to be the one that owns that market or product or business or what have you. Like there's mm-hmm. a set of steps that I can do to go through the sales and marketing and delivery and customer service that where I could, I could based on my capabilities and scale, I can continue, I can step through that. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that all ideas are good ideas or that I should pursue every idea that I can or, or every idea that I can come up with. But there's there's ways to test the and verify and validate the quality of a product for whether you're a, a big puppy like Nike or a little person that has an idea and just wants to run some tests and build a build a business online for example yes and i think that's the the the, the um i think you summarize it absolutely right you the size and scale of a company determines the size and scale of how they can go to uh, market with whatever test and experiment. And, um, but it doesn't stand in the way from even the smallest companies, an individual person being able to test those same ideas mm-hmm. um, at a very low um, cost today because of the access to um, the dig- digital tools that we, mm-hmm. that we have. Any, any kind of final thoughts on our initial conversation here? And we'll take a quick break. One one idea to add to this, and I think it's really a precursor, is that as we're talking about marketing and sales and that distinction, 
at the end of the day, any organization, regardless of size, has got to have a high level of clarity on what their target market is so that I can make sure I have a consistent message, consistent with my service or product that allows me to win so that when I make that sale, you get raving reviews and things of that nature. And, and I think it's also to that step or phase or goal is I think that you define that population for the project kind of or for the objectives is that that audience, although you might think that it's global eventually or, you know, obviously being more specific than that, but for each step or phase of your business, whatever kind of test or iteration you're on, there's an audience and a target population for that project Mm -hmm. that you're ultimately, I think, trying to know better and understand more. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. Well, we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back with you. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Eric Veal with the Abstract Capable Communities Podcast, and I'm here today with Andy Scott and Alan Anderson. Uh, We're talking about sales and marketing, and uh, what we'd like to talk about next, uh, get a little bit more concrete, basically talk about the steps and um, methods, basically, to sell and market. Andy, can you kind of lead us through a discussion about the action plan, basically, that's required to sell and market? Sure. I I think that, um, you know, along with the AQPC, roadmap, if you like, of, uh, of processes, uh, we start off with a marketing um, strategy. And a marketing strategy would um, start off with market research. You would uh, drill down from the market research into um, specific target markets. So you do your research, you bring that down now to a set of target markets, Then you decide, well, what's your positioning? What is it that you're going to bring uniquely Mm -hmm. to the market? How are you going to differentiate yourself from everybody else? This is one of the most crucial things to get right. It is the thing that makes the the difference between wildly successful um, businesses and those who are not. Not so. There can only ever be one company who has the lowest cost. But if you differentiate, there can be many versions of a company in the same industry, even in the same category, by being differentiated from your competitors. And so positioning and determining your unique value, what it is that you bring to market, is, is one of the key Um, elements. Then you have to look at your competitors. What are they doing? You know, you might want to challenge them in certain spaces. You might want to avoid them um, in certain spaces, but getting down into um, the competitive landscape is important um, too. And then you need to start and say, now I understand what it is I'm bringing to market to who I'm bringing to market and how that's going to look against my competitors, well, now you start to say, how am I going to bring that to market? What are the strategies that I'm going to do? Am I going to do this through email marketing campaigns? Am I going to have events? You know, one of the ways that I filled my pipeline uh, would be to do uh, free talks. So bring people into an environment and teach the subject of marketing and help 
small business owners understand and learn um, how they can market their uh, particular businesses. Um, so there are many paths mm -hmm. to market, but you, know, you need to decide which ones you're going to, to take. Then you're going to need to decide how much money you're going to spend. You know, and again, we get down to, uh, you know, we talked earlier about the different sizes of companies. You know, a Nike can afford to test on the scale of a country-wide application of their marketing. Whereas you know, an individual might market to their family to start with, to mm -hmm. test the messaging of their product, to test um, what, it, what it was. As long as, of course, <laughs> their family <laughs> represents their target market. Uh, and then finally, you need to decide how you're going to measure the success of what you're doing. Um, so you need to have a set of metrics that determine you know, how have I performed in my marketing um, efforts. And quite often this is you know, turned as return on investment. It's quite difficult to um, measure, but you need to know by which of your marketing campaigns are most successful because deciding to go to market with three different methods. So, for example, you choose, well, I'm going to do email marketing, I'm going to do a direct mail campaign where I'm sending out flyers, and I'm going to do um, talks um, uh, on local meetups. And so those are my three methods. Each one of those comes with a different cost to do. Um, and then each of those methods is going to bring in a certain number of leads, a certain number of sales and from that you can then say well you know my email marketing led to so many sales my direct mail led to y number of sales and my events led them to z number of sales and you can then see which one works best and then you can reinvest into the ones that work best and tweak the ones that don't how, how what kind of time frame is that or should something like that be on for a, say, small business? Like, let's say I was an attorney, for example, and I wanted to try out a few things. How, how much time would you recommend people let things soak and why? In other words, you know, let's say this attorney is going to do classes, like you say, or maybe they're going to do a meetup. Maybe they're going to do some email campaigns. Maybe they're going to tweet some stuff and what have you. And let, let's say that they do have a, a measurement system for that thing and they have a clue of how much time and effort they're spending on each of those channels and how much money and what they're... So that, that they do have it measured. But what what's the milestone that you would design into that business process for the person? Because I what I see happening with small business is you're so busy in the day-to-day, -day, just turning on it mm -hmm. and you're going to add a new channel and it might be managed and measured and whatnot. But without a structure or a step or a milestone or a plan, you're kind of just flapping in the breeze. Yeah, so I think that um, uh, a lot of that depends on the volume. Um, it's much easier to test in an email marketing campaign because we are able to reach a lot of people for very, little, um, for very little money. Also, when you get into doing physical things like um, uh, informative talks, educational uh, presentations there's also a learning curve for the person doing it and so um, you you may need two or three attempts um, with the um, 
with the talk, but only one um, one campaign with the email marketing before you have enough data on which to make a, a decision. I think the important thing here is to think that, you know, in a week you could build a, um, a, a marketing strategy, you know, for a small business. This, it doesn't have to be rocket science. It doesn't have to be something where um, by you spend months and months um, on this, especially if you're already in, you know, if you're an attorney in a practice, you already have access to clients. Mm. And so you can quickly understand, you know, by looking at your own clients, which clients bring me um, the most um, income, which ones do I like to work with best. So this is one way to start to build a profile of your target um, market. If you're already in business, you can start to look, um, you know, I call them the, the diamonds in your own backyard. Um, you already have uh, access to a lot of this information that you can mine um, with just a little bit of um, thought and application. And it seems like another requirement to that is, it, it feels like a prerequisite to that is you'd, you, a person would need to know their product and service portfolio, kind of what's the scope of their offerings, what do they do? So I, it seems like it'd be a pretty easy way to inventory an individual and just ask them, you know, what's taking up your time? What are you, what are you doing? What are you billing? What are the different activities that you do? What do you, what do you like and what do you not like? So it seems like that's pretty easy data to get at, at. And then if there's goals set against that of what would you like to do less of? What would you like to do more of? Okay, let's do some campaigns or whatever to do more of that stuff. And, and to go through that process or project of trying to build up that book of business or that pipeline is that the right kind of thinking? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I found that um, uh, yeah, from, from my own practice that doing um, maybe two sessions of two hours with, a, um, with somebody like an attorney, a small business um, owner like a, an attorney, is enough to be able to get all of the data, not only to build the marketing strategy, but also to understand um, what are the hot buttons um, for the clients that they, you know, so what are the unique things that this particular attorney or particular small business can bring to the market? What are the things that get their clients excited about going to, to work for them? Um, you know, who, who would rather go to work, uh, go hire an attorney? Um, you know, which one would you choose? The one that says, uh, you know, highly professional, great attorney, who's been in business for the last 25 years, or the attorney that says, I win 96% of my cases. Mm. Um, I mean, I think the answer is you know, startlingly clear, but 96% of attorneys take the first approach to their, um, to their marketing, not the second. And, and, and uh, as far as the sales marketing stuff goes, it seems like there's maybe always a way to put lipstick on a pig or if some if somebody isn't great then a professional could kind of polish them up and make them look better look, look better on paper look better in the market and I think that there truly is an industry out there for it is is that there's there's value in the marketer I think to prop up people to make them look as good as they can but then there's still shades of quality once they're propped up where the attorney maybe doesn't have a 96% win rate, they have a 50% win rate. 
And then what do you do? Like, what's the project or program that you do with that? Does that disqualify that client? Does that mean that that attorney should go out of business? You know, like what? You know, for, for me, um, I think that you always have to start with the premise that unless someone's got something, you know, good to sell, unless they have a quality service, um, then I don't want to um, help someone provide a bad service because uh, number one the more work they do the more of a bad reputation they're going to get i mean it's a, a a feedback loop it's just like if they do a great job then they get better ratings they get you know people go go to yelp or um, google wherever and, and give them their reviews um, and so helping someone do a bad job um, by getting more clients to do a bad job for just isn't the right thing to do for me i go through an innovation process with the client, and where we look at what are the unique strengths mm -hmm. of that particular um, uh, of that particular client, and and honestly, if I don't think that the person's capable of giving a great service, then they're not someone that I would sure. um, would work with. Um, but I do think that there are a lot of people who have got great assets in their business, in their personality, in the way they do things but they don't um, see them um, sure. themselves. Uh, I'll give an example of um, uh, a game company who used to make the old uh, arcade games that would sit in the, uh, if you're old enough to remember Pac-Man and Space Invaders and those sorts of things. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, a company did was theirs was so well built that a 400 pound man could jump up and down on the sides and they wouldn't break. And so that was their marketing. You know, this is how, when you saw how they built this console, I mean, it was just an incredible thing. And so you get a great big guy or two, three great big guys jumping up and down on it. And all of a sudden you've demonstrated something that nobody had ever thought of, nobody had ever considered before. All they were doing was building these game consoles and nobody thought anything of it, but it turned out to be a great way to demonstrate something that was of interest to an arcade. You know, because what are kids doing in those arcades? They're beating the crap out of those <laughs> machines. And so being able to sell, yeah, we've got a machine that can withstand 10 people jumping up and down on it. It's a great way to, um, to market the product. It's interesting, as you, even using that as an example, you did such a great job, Andy, of talking through the, uh, the what, who, and how. And I think if we can continue to remember our why on this of our marketing and our sales should be increasing a bottom line because I'm, I'm selling the right thing. And I'm reminded of a, a more recent example of, I saw the distinction between Amazon and Ace. And if you... Um, we happen to be in Seattle and so we're more coffee prone. And so mugs, you know, it's like, what's your flavor of, of mug and those things. And, and the, um, have you guys seen the new Yetis that have come out? They'll, they'll keep your ice cold for like two or three days. Some, some, you know, they've set the new standard, right? Yeah. What's interesting about that is Ace Hardwell, hardware will sell those because they're trying to hit a particular 
target market versus Amazon will not because the margin that doesn't fit within their parameter. And I think that that goes to your what you're helping us see, Andy, in that um, when we know when we know what we're aiming for, then we can start to use the right product. We can market the right thing and make those right sales versus what happens though. I'm, I'm curious what happens though, when we have somebody who's unethical, unlike you, who you go meet with an attorney and we realize 50% win rate and this is probably not the right fit. Okay. So you're, you're going to realize this isn't, we're not in alignment because you're only going to help someone sell what's you know really true or whatever that looks like versus somebody's like 50%. Nope, no sweat. Like I can, I can doctor you up and I can wordsmith and I can project the right thing. How would a consumer start to maybe look on the other side of this and say, you know, is this, is this legitimate? Is this somebody just trying to sell me something, market something that isn't really true? Yeah. So I think that's a, a, a great question. I, I, I think that um, personal recommendations is always hmm. um, it, number one. It's the most trusted. When all the surveys that are ever done, um, people uh, trust the advice that comes from those that they know and already trust. And so, speaking to people that have already done, already um, worked with that particular um, service provider is a good way of doing. Um, you know, I've done quite a lot of digital marketing um, campaigns, but I would tell you that it's quite easy for people to manipulate what they have in the digital marketing campaigns. People can, mm. you know, falsely write up um, reviews. Um, you know, people can make out something that is better than um, it really is or do things that have, you know, never had the service but still go off and, and rate it. And so, uh, you know, I, I do think that Google and uh, other search engines are a good place to go find uh, businesses, but I don't think they're always the most reliable um, for uh, determining the quality of the service. I think if you're going to um, rely on those, then you need to look at, you know, how many people have done this review because there's a big difference between mm-hmm. five people saying this is a five-star business and 500 people saying this is a five-star mm-hmm. um, business. But, you know, going and talking to um, uh, the uh, attorney in this case um, uh, and uh, trying to understand, being a well-informed consumer, a lot of what I do in helping business owners is helping them educate the buyer on the buying criteria. So what are the what are the things to look for in buying something so you can make those determinations by going talking to the service provider. Um, and so I think that's really you know, an important piece is going and actually talking to the service provider already armed with some mm-hmm. knowledge. And a service provider that will provide you that knowledge is a great start. What I'm what I'm struck by right now, or my question is about kind of the pre facto and post facto nature of things. So I think there's two examples where the product has already been built, or uh, the person is already providing their legal services. The thing is established and out there, and so forth. And so there's an approach and a strategy and so forth to market them. But then there might also be all kinds of issues related to the quality and capability of the product itself which is to say like feedback, there's, 
there's things that you wouldn't necessarily say sell market etc because the capability or scope of the product or service at the time isn't great and so i don't know i'm just i'm just thinking of that issue because it seems like there's this kind of hard and fast line between you could always try to market something and make it better but that's not necessarily a great investment for that phase of the quality like don't invest too much in marketing now because your product or service is kind of stinky invest in education training or whatever it might be to actually or development quote unquote to make your mousetrap better it's not time to go to market and i think that there's those two kind of time dimensions there of are you ready or are you not ready do you guys have any like thoughts on on um I guess, like, is the issue what phase of business you're in? Is it? Well, I th- certainly think that um, a business starting off from scratch um, with with no um, customers at all yet, it is quite easy to go out and test the market. Mm-hmm. It's quite easy to um, uh, to experiment. Um, whereas if you're already Established, it's quite a hard thing to hear when someone tells you, uh, you know, hey, you're not the best at this and I'm not going to market you as the best at this. It's actually one of the reasons why um, I've changed my practice somewhat from just the sales and marketing to more of a strategic um, consulting business to help companies um, develop their business overall, not just the sales and market, and to actually um, to innovate their product, to innovate their service, um, to to drive them as a better company overall, rather than uh, you know we talked earlier about putting lipstick on a pig, um, you know. So instead of doing that, I, I, that's one of the reasons why if I. I've changed the uh, direction of my practice to become a more strategic um, coach and consultant rather than just focusing on the sales and marketing. Yeah, I agree with that. I I think I like that approach. That's kind of, I think my point is that it feels to me in some ways irresponsible, but you could also say it's strategic. Like the thing that I'm best at is sales and marketing and maybe, and maybe Andy's a perfect partner for me to look at the operational lens or the development lens or or Alan's a perfect partner to to do the development that's actually required to get to the person to the next level. But but I, I think if you look at sales and marketing just in isolation, it winds up being the question of like, is it really good now or mm-hmm. is it even the time to sell or market? So we'll take a quick break um, and we'll come back and we'll keep talking about sales and marketing. Thank you. All right, everybody, we're back here with the Abstract Capable Communities podcast, and uh, we're going to wrap it up with a kind of detailed conversation on sales specifically and selling. And I was I was just mentioning um, to, to these guys during the break that um, a lot of people have issues, I think, with salespeople based on their bad experiences or people that they, they may know that they, they think are um, unethical salespeople, that when the salespeople are are honest and true, what they're what they're truly emoting is something that's maybe evil. And so <laughs> I, I wonder I wonder if we can kind of address that topic and maybe talk through uh, really kind of what what is sales. I think we've already kind of defined that. We can talk about sales strategy, but I want to kind of focus in some ways on 
the persona of sales? And is there a way to kind of unpack or reframe the the notion, maybe the bad notions that we have of certain salespeople or, or beliefs about selling that it's not necessarily bad? Like what, uh, from from my guests here, what, uh, what are some ways to think about sales or selling that aren't so bad? <laughs> well, I think I'm going to let Alan take that to start with. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny because the you kicked us off, Andy, with, uh, even thinking through marketing and sales hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago. And when it was this very kind of pure and simple process of, you know, I need a loaf of bread. I've got, you know, some water I'll trade you or whatever that looked like. And if there's anything we know about humanity, uh, and this came out with a lot of Goldman's work uh, back in the 80s when we started understanding emotional intelligence and things like that, the brain is Teflon for anything positive, but the brain is Velcro for anything negative. And so now we lump in the sales element where somebody's trying to sell you something that isn't really true. This is kind of to a point you made earlier, Eric, that there is a level of risk involved when we're talking through this. So what we have to understand is we need to take accountability, personal accountability for if I'm going to engage Andy in a service or a product he can help me with, I've got, under, I've got to understand and assume some responsibility and know I've got to do my own due diligence, which goes so well into what you said earlier, equipping us uh, with Andy of let's look at the testimonials, let's look at the credibility, let's look at the reviews, let's look at those things so that I can kind of insulate myself and avoid some of those negative sales aspects. Yeah, tr- trust has to be a context. I think it, it feels like at least on the buyer's side, that you at least have to go to the place of trust or be motivated to be buying in mm-hmm. the first place and not, not to be buying something in duress. Or I think, I think there's those kinds of situations from some people where they might hate people in power because they have to give sure. people in power yeah. money. And so people that are salespeople or in power taking things from them, it's just never going to be a good transaction because spending money is evil or scary Mm -hmm. or what have you. Which is why I bring up that brain Teflon Velcro analogy because as in the marketplace, I will be wrongly attributed with anybody who understands me for what service or product I offer and they'll assume that if they had a bad experience with somebody similar to me, Alan's just like them. And so that's where, uh, likely, that's why marketing and sales became so prominent is I have to differentiate myself from other people so you know I'm not like them. And so that, you know, that obviously kind of gets into what we're talking about now. But I, I, that humanity piece, we, we do have to understand that it's not merely business to business or those things. Like at the end of the day, we're all people and we all have wants and fears and needs and so on and so forth. And I think, um, yeah, the, the point about trust... Um, you know, people associate, uh, you know, the old snake oil salesman or the used car um, sales personas that people um, still hold on to, um, to today. I, I mean, I've been victim to it of myself many, uh, many times. I think the what people want is to be able to purchase without risk. Mm-hmm. So if there's no risk on them of losing something, then they're much more likely to purchase. And it's incumbent upon sellers to be able to um, put things to 
their customers in that manner. The same with the marketing, to design guarantees and um, design the brand promise in such a way that it is something that you can absolutely deliver. Those folks who promise one thing but don't deliver it, mm -hmm. uh, then they deservedly get that label of the, the, you know, the used card sale um, person. And for me, uh, personally, um, I had a mentor that um, talked to me about this because, you know, frankly, I didn't want to be perceived as a used car salesman. And, you know, frankly, that's what the general perception was. Where you go out, people look at you, you're selling something, they don't want to talk to you. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what he turned around to me and says, look, if you believe in your product and you believe that the person you're selling to is going to be better off that you're delivering them value for the money that they're going to give you, then all you're doing is helping that person. And so I reframed my entire thinking about sales. Instead of thinking of this as being a sales process, this is a process through which I am going through to help someone get value for, for money. And that means that when I provide a return on investment, I'm very sure about what that return in on investment is going to be and I'm comfortable in saying you know I'm providing them with a return on investment I might be asking for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars but if I'm re guaranteeing them a return on investment of ten times then you know the equation on their side is two and a half million versus two hundred and fifty thousand I know we're talking big numbers here but it still illustrates the point and if the guarantee is, is that they only, you know, they're going to get that 10 times uh, return on investment, I can feel good in helping them as long as I deliver um, that. And I wouldn't be selling it if I, if I didn't deliver it. Mm -hmm. And we should be encouraged to know on the personal side, if you don't believe in your service or product, then you would be wise to realize that and get out and go do something you can fully buy into because long-term, you won't make it. You won't be able to add that value, be helpful. Um, sometimes, uh, at least within the clientele I have the privilege of working with, it amazes me when prospect uh, employees will project, oh, I can do this, this, and this. They're essentially selling themselves to be employed by the organization. And very quickly you get discovered that you can't do what you said you could do. So I think that's a great warning, uh, probably implied, Andy, but uh, if you don't fully buy into what you're serving or selling, get out. Yeah, and I think it's really easy as a small business, if you own a small business and you're in charge of your own product and service, you can also look to say, well, how do I innovate? How do yeah, I absolutely. change what I'm doing? It's like, yeah, a very different thing um, when you're just, you know, you, you have a role as a salesperson for a large corporation versus you're a business owner and you have the role of, you know, salesperson, marketer, um, bottle washer and janitor. Uh, you know, you fulfill all of those roles as a solopreneur or, you know, if you own a, a small business. Um, but it doesn't mean that you have to sell something you don't believe in. You can change mm -hmm. what you sell and how you sell. Um, and make the efforts um, to do that. So let's just talk a, bit, a little bit about the, 
um, strategy of sales. We talked about the strategy um, of marketing. And the two things kind of fit together. Um, so one of the first things we do in the marketing strategy was identify your target market. Now, once in sales, once you know what your target market is, you now profile those customers. What are those customers like? What are their, from a sales perspective, what are their um, wants and needs and how do you match that to your product? And this is where the work of marketing comes together um, with sales. Yeah, one of the um, less fancy pieces of, of selling is managing um, the, the, the lead management, if you like, the communications. Some people call it relationship management. Um, yeah, but it's basically the contact that you have with um, a client and where you are in the process of the selling pipeline. Uh, then you've got to decide, well, how are you going about selling? Just like you decided in the marketing piece, what are my, tar- what are my routes to market? Is it email? Is it um, you know, through face-to-face a- events? You also, as a salesperson, have to decide what are my, um, my processes that I'm going to uh, have to engage with, um, with the customer. You have to decide what routes you're going to take. Are you going to have internal salespeople? Are you going to have external sales folks? So people doing this um, on your behalf, but not directly within um, your company. Are you going to have um, other businesses sell on your um, behalf? You have to decide what size, how many people are you going to have selling? Again, based on your marketing plan, you'll know how many people are you going to be targeting and what you expect to be able to sell. And you'll know what you expect to be able to to, to convert into um, sales based on how much you're going to spend. Um, and so then you need to be able to uh, you know, match your sales force to, um, to that. You also have to be able to decide how are you going to organize that sales force. Again, in a small business, that's very straightforward. Um, you know, but in a larger organization, you might have to decide, am I going to sell on a geographic perspective so each salesperson will own a particular geography or will they own a particular segment of the market manufacturing healthcare education will they own a bit of both will they be a pacific northwest guy who owns manufacturing and these are decisions that you make um, and identify as part of your um, sales strategy and last but no means least, uh, and probably the most important thing as far as the sales guys uh, are concerned, what's the infrastructure and the incentive scheme mm. going to be? How are people going to get rewarded? And this is a very key um, element. Just like we have metrics for re- doing the return on investment for our marketing, your incentive scheme drives the behavior of the sales reps and you want to be careful that you are not driving sales reps to sell based on not understanding the profitability because if you give the sales folks the ability to discount and provide promotions and you measure them on the number of sales that they do well they can give away um, stuff basically and get a lot more Uh, numbers, um, but not make the company any money. 
And so it's very critical that you think through um, what behavior do you want those sales guys and girls to, um, to exhibit. And so that kind of summarizes the overall um, sales strategy and how you um, need to think about putting that into, um, into the marketplace. Sounds good. One other thing I was just going to maybe add to that into a previous conversation we had is, is some of the other attributes of these salespeople that we imagine, whether we imagine them in, in the best possible way that they're the excellent uh, say, for example, uh, you know, Nordstrom, of course, is known for customer service and maybe, I don't know if they say sales, but it is really that customer service ethic that you go and have a pretty good experience when you go to Nordstrom and they treat you really well and you just kind of feel like a hero when you're there, basically. But um, I have a list I'll just kind of rattle through here is like just different attributes of the good attributes of salespeople in terms of both their actions, what they're doing, and their attributes of what they're like. So a few things that they would do would probably be to help, to educate, to inform, to inspire, to motivate, to listen, to empathize, to understand and facilitate. So there's, there's quite a bit there where as buyers, we, re and as, as, yeah, basically as buyers, we just have high expectations of how we expect to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. And the more empathy and understanding we have of our own emotions and psychology as buyers and what we really expect we know when we're when people are out of line with that we sense it right we know if people aren't living up to our own standards and so there's some measuring that goes on there and then as far as their other attributes not what they're doing exactly behaviorally but just generally you know they should be honest they should be forthcoming they should be humble they should be competent they should be confident they should be these kinds of things so um it sounds like you're looking for a decent all-round person. Basically, I mean, that's, that's pretty critical. But then to your point about the sales incentives, for example, and how the organization can ruin all of that, right? So as an individual, I could be the best. I could be really, you know, great, smart, nice, etc. But then my performance context, like how I'm paid at work or how I'm ma managed or whatever, what I'm doing as my job, that context really matters, right? So I'm not really myself exactly at work necessarily. I'm doing a job, I'm playing a role, I'm, I'm trying to make the company money, for example. And so there's this tension or rub where if the interests of the organization aren't aligned with the skills or capabilities of the salespeople that are employed, then there's an issue of inauthenticity or just malalignment. It seems like a lot of what you um, mentioned there was a lot of people would consider as being key to developing relationships. <laughs> Which is kind of a dirty word. Is it, do we like, <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, I agree it's critical, right? So we, I think we all agree that the relationship development, relationship management part of sales is, is really important. And that's the empathy, I think, and understanding side of things is we're not, per se trying to transact we're trying mm -hmm. to develop we're trying to focus instead of on the transaction we're looking at customer lifetime value we're looking at at what what is the value of that relationship to the organization long term and what's the role that that particular salesperson or that touch point that's customer facing that day what benefit do they create towards the overall value of that client being happy and motivated with a base organization over a lifetime right 
<laughs> BS? Is it, is it I, BS? I don't I, know. You know I, I don't think that it's, I don't think it's BS, but I, I, I will tell you from research that I've read that um, it's not necessarily the relationship builder type of salesperson that is the most effective of the salespeople. Um, I, I don't remember exactly who it was that, uh, that, that did the research, so forgive me for, for that. Um, but essentially they came, they identified uh, five types of um, salesperson. And there was the relationship builder, and they were focused on developing strong um, personal professional relationships, smoothing over the, the waters. Um, there was those that were the hard workers, the grafters, the ones that made more calls in a day than anybody else. There were the lone wolves, those that were supremely self-confident. Um, they were the cowboys, the, the, rule, the rule breaker um, type of folks. Then you've got the problem solvers uh, who really focused on the post-sales um, follow-up and resolving issues in order to gain further um, business. And then there were the challengers. And the, the challengers were the group that turned out to be the most effective sales um, folks. And their approach was to understand the customer well, understand the customer's business and how hmm. their product that they were selling fit into that customer. They understood the buying process of the, the customer. And they weren't afraid to push back and create some tension over their relationship. They weren't afraid to push back on um, pricing discussions. They weren't afraid to take a line over, no, that is not the right way to move forward. Um, and this was you know, uh, research that was done, you know, six or 7,000 people across all industries, across all geographies, hmm. and came out very strongly um, that the, this, um, this more of an approach of educating and understanding but not being afraid to create some tension was the most effective um, sales manner. And what's interesting is, is that when you look at what customers say drives their loyalty in customer loyalty, it's things like their rep offers a unique perspective on their marketplace and their business and how their product fits in with that. The rep helps navigate through alternatives. The rep helps avoid problems and landmines. They help them through the buying process. And they give the air of having support of the whole organization um, behind them. And so these are some of the things that drive customer loyalty. And so when you pair those two things up together, they match really strongly. And there's tons of evidence for many, many years that strong customer loyalty drives 
increased revenues. And you know, um, the most loyal customers buy uh, more of a uh, uh, of a product, buy more from your company. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there really is a true relationship between great sales, customer loyalty, and the revenue your business takes in overall. It's like this exponential driver. It's not just what the sales guy brought in, but that drives then the loyalty, which drives in further um, sales and further revenues. So it's an interesting um, way to look at it because for many, many years, if not decades, all you've ever heard is that it's relationship building, relationship building. It's about relationships. It's about relationships. And of course, I'm not saying you can be a jerk and be rude and nasty. That's not, not my point. It's that there's more to it. And it's taking all of that stuff that you learned in the marketing, you know, about how the product works, what's unique, and really tying that down to um, the customer. It really, as you explain that, it sounds a lot like what your mentor told you years ago of be helpful, know when to push back, know when to you know, understand further and, and those things. And it's, it's what's further interesting is that we could sum it up by saying go out and be helpful, especially given the nature of how things are done and information's changed and things are purchased now and, and things of that nature. If more people were more mindful of how can I be helpful for you, there would be probably a greater sense of reciprocity of that mindset versus I've got to protect myself or I'm jaded or I've had a bad experience or things of that nature. No, I think that's you know, um, very true. And I think that uh, um, when you personalize it to things like helping them with the buying process, if you're an attorney, um, helping someone understand how the process is going to be in front of them. Yeah. The client doesn't know what's going to be happening. Mm -hmm. They're coming to you as the expert. And so if you can help them understand not just what it is you're getting, you're getting representation from me, I'm going to be in court for you, but all the other things, they, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to have pre-trial conversations and we're going to have meetings with the other um, attorneys and you know, breaking these steps out can make a big difference to, um, to the client and the client's willingness to um, stay with you and use you again and the client's willingness to refer you to, to other people. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about ramming down someone's throat, your product. It's about really understanding how it pertains to um, the client or customer's um, current situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it sounds to me like the relationship word, you can look at it as, as the fact of the relationship and you take the relationship for granted or assume it or I'm there selling or the nature of the relationship is whatever you kind of came into it thinking. It can always be like that, but that doesn't seem like the right way to think about it. You have to be more dynamic. You have to be more challenging. You have to be more active. You have to be more involved. Yeah, the person that just takes you out for, for meals and drinks anymore, you know, that's just not the way things yeah. um, win anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, this isn't uh, Mad Men, um, uh, you know, anymore. It, it's much more people want to be informed and 
be educated about what they're doing. So on the podcast next time, uh, we'll talk about delivering products and services and essentially take this conversation, which has been about uh, sales, sales and marketing, and in particular, the selling part of once, once we've gotten a client and we go to actually provide and deliver the service, we'll talk about some of those nuances next time. So thanks, thanks for joining us today. Thanks to, to uh, Andy and Alan for being our guests, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to the Abstract Podcast. The creator and host of this podcast is Eric Veal. It was recorded, engineered, and produced by Christian Harris. You can contact us and find all our show notes on our website at appsjack.libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N. If you like what you hear on this podcast, let us know by writing us a very nice five-star review on iTunes and subscribing. You can also find out more by going to appsjack.com meetup to get more information on this month's topic and the corresponding meetup group that Eric hosts in Bellevue, Washington each month. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next month for our next episode of the Abstract Podcast. This has been a Seatown Media production. Find out more at seatownmedia.com. S-E-A hyphen townmedia.com.